with you this morning. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. If you do not have a Bible, hopefully you can find one um, around you or underneath the seat in front of you. We, we refer to those as our pew Bibles. And this morning, if you do not own a Bible, please see that as our gift to you. Take it home with you. Everything we do here at Grace Covenant Church, we pray, is grounded solely and sufficiently upon the Word of God. And so we are continue, continuing our sermon series through the letter to the Hebrews. And if you were with us last Lord's Day, we were in this same passage, so this would be kind of part two, um, looking at different, different, uh, different verses within the text. And so if you were not here with us last week, as, as I'm reading through this passage and highlighting specifically just a few verses, just know that we were looking at this also last Lord's Day. Um, starting in verse 8 of Hebrews chapter 11, please follow along as I read from God's word. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had, ha, have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Hear the word of the Lord. And as I mentioned just moments ago, we, we saw last week Abraham's faith being expressed specifically by his obedience to the word of God. So in those first few verses, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. True trust in God is manifested in decisive action and obedience. God called Abraham, told him to go, 
and Abraham by faith believed and went. Where in, in Abraham's life, what we already identified in these, in, in these verses was that where he was called to go and what he was called into by God, in the midst of circumstances that some of us would see and say, man, those were difficult to say the least. By faith, he was able to joyfully accept his situation since he knew that he had, this is what we saw in chapter 10, a better possession and an abiding one. So faith gives God's word and God's promises, even if those promises are far off, a present reality in one's soul that actually informs and, and changes the way that we behave now. So living by faith, hearing God speak, believing him, trusting upon his promises, those realities actually inform our present situation. We see that as his life is unfolding before us and the author to the letter of the Hebrews is identifying all these examples of these men and women who live by faith. The title for today's sermon is The Faith, not real original, but The Faith of Abraham and Sarah. So what we're going to look at this morning, uh, first verses 11 and 12, looking at the wife of Abraham for a bit. Both of them, though, ought to be kept in mind when we're looking at even Sarah's example of a person who lived by faith. You could refer to this portion as kind of the great old couple that we look to, and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the, the, the author of this letter penned these particular examples of those who live by faith for us to, to read about, to remember, to reflect, and to be encouraged. Because in all of these examples, we are just giving, we're given a, a wide variety of a landscape of what this life presents to those who are sojourners and exiles, those who are pilgrims on this pilgrimage. These examples help us because it's coming from, from all different parts of, of someone's life. For example, here again, verses 11 and 12, we know that Sarah was barren, unable to have children. By faith, Sarah received, herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Okay, now, what's obviously highlighted here is that this woman, Sarah, was once barren, and God, making this promise to Abraham, she became pregnant. That is something that if you've read through Old Testament, this wouldn't seem foreign to you as you're reading through Genesis and then reminded here in Hebrews chapter 11. But I want to remind us this morning that there is, there is a much bigger picture here being painted of Sarah living by faith than just entering into the story to have the baby of Abraham, and that's kind of the end of her, her testimony, her life of living by faith. We would seriously be mistaken to really only see the role of the wife as one who bears children for the husband. While that is such a great glorious privilege of the wife of a husband, there's so much more here in Sarah's story that I, I don't want us to miss. For Sarah, we must remember 
She had proved herself to be a woman of faith by her willingness to identify herself completely with Abraham's great venture of faith. From the time of their departure in Ur of the Chaldeans and throughout the long years that we emphasized last week of danger and hardship in the land of promise. So while they were in the land of promise, they were still aliens and sojourners in the place that God had actually promised them. If you recall, an example to kind of testify to this is that Abraham even had to pay for a burial site for his family in the land of promise. It wasn't actualized for them. And so Sarah, living by faith, went along with her husband's call by God to go. So what is the author driving at here and giving us this example of Sarah living by faith? I think there's a very important lesson for all of us here. This passage really does focus largely on Abraham, but the thing we need to know about Abraham walking by faith, we men who are married need to know this about Abraham. Men who are here today who are not yet married need to know this about Abraham's Sarah. Characteristically, a man's trust in the Lord, please hear this, never rises above his wife's willingness for him to trust in the Lord. Now, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, a professor that I was blessed to have my first year of seminary, was once giving a lecture to seminary students, and afterwards he learned that he had really upset quite a few of the people there that day. And this is what he had said, Dear brothers, it is highly unlikely that the quality of your ministry, its decisiveness, its sharp edge, and its whole-souled commitment will be able to rise above your wife or fiancé's commitment to that ministry. And really, that is very true. How do I know that it's true? I know it's true because we've actually seen it happen in people's life and ministry. He goes on as he's speaking to these seminary students as saying that he knows it's true because it's not just because you're a minister that it's true, it's because you're a man that it's true. That's why it's so important to have some measure of discernment about those whom we marry. It's important for us to know that two cannot walk together, as Amos says, except that they are agreed together. And so, Rather than just seeing Sarah as the woman who gives birth to Isaac as part of this story, her walking by faith is one who is united with her husband Abraham, walking together because they both agreed upon what God had called them to do, to, to be about, called them into, and there was a willingness for her to say, I will go, I will follow, and I will believe. Now, as we think about Abraham and Sarah and their marriage, we see for all of their ups and downs, and there were many ups and downs, they were, in a remarkable way, committed to the promise that God had made to them. Many of us, if you're, if you're like me, get hung up on the fact that when you're reading through the narrative in Genesis, there were several strikes against Sarah and how she responded in certain situations. Not just Sarah, Abraham as well, for sure. 
But in Sarah's life in particular, after God had made the promise to Abraham that he would actually have his very own son, Sarah puts forth Hagar because she was barren and didn't see any other way for Abraham to have a son. And after Hagar's son, Ishmael, was born, the Lord made clear once again that it was not going to be Ishmael that would be the promised offspring, but that Sarah would actually give birth to Abraham's son. And then the Lord came along when Abraham was 99 and said, About this time next year, Sarah is going to have a baby boy. And then he said, Where is she, by the way? Well, we, we know the story. She was, she was in the tent laughing. In a sense, she was basically saying, this, this sounds so unreal. It seems ridiculous as I look at myself, a 90-year-old, and look at my husband, a 99-year-old, and think, I am well past the age of childbearing. The idea may have sounded absurd, and there may have been a period of time where she really struggled to wrap her mind and her heart around this, but apparently she came to trust the promise. Now, how, how do we know that she trusts the promise? A couple of things. One, the text says that we're looking at, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. But I also want us to look into the situation itself and just kind of think practically here. So, the pregnancy that she experienced with Isaac was miraculous, yes. But it was just the same way that all women experience the pregnancy of a child. Supernatural providence of God, the blessing of, of a, a, a new life being, being uh, created in the womb. Baby Isaac did not come because some, you know, kind of the cartoons that we've seen in the past, a stork just happens to deliver it one day to the mother that's so excited to receive it. Not at all. And so I think digging into the situation, let's put it this way, a, a 90-year-old woman and a 99-year-old man look at each other, and by faith, Sarah in that situation had to have looked at her husband at that moment and said, I believe, my sweet husband, let's go ahead and, and try. There had to actually be a belief that was translated into action. This wasn't like God just zapped her one day and she became pregnant. There was an actual willingness to believe and say, okay, husband that I love, let's do this. And I'll let you fill in the blanks. But there was an activity that had to occur. That was a testament to her living by faith. Now, as you think about that scene, Abraham's faith, Sarah's faith, how could they possibly have trusted the promise of God in that particular situation? We're not left to scratch our heads, even from Hebrews 11 and what we see in Genesis narrative, but in Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul, inspired by God, gives us this impression, or he makes this expression, sorry, that I want to draw your attention to. In, in Romans 4, verse 18, please hear what he writes. In hope, he, being Abraham, 
believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. I don't know if you've ever read through Romans and gotten to that passage and, and, and kind of scratched your head. In hope, he believed against hope. What does it mean to believe against hope? It means Abraham looked at his circumstances and he contemplates really two undeniable facts. Number one, he contemplates his own body being as good as dead, meaning he was extremely old. And number two, he contemplates the deadness of Sarah's womb. Those are the circumstances, the reality that presents themselves to him. Abraham is aware that he and his bride are beyond the age of childbearing. The promise God made to Abraham is that one would come forth from his own body. He shall be your heir. And the second part of the promise was, was to have him look towards the heavens, if you remember in, in Genesis 15, and count the stars. So shall your descendants be, Abraham. And human, humanly speaking, God's promises were hopeless. They were hopeless in that sense. However, Abraham believes against hope. But please don't miss this. The first part of the expression is in hope. In hope, he believed against hope. This expression means that Abraham, in addition to contemplating his circumstances, did not end there. He goes on to contemplate his God. There has to be that, that shift that occurs. If you just stay in your circumstances, contemplating and pondering, you will be led to despair, to maybe even unbelief, but he does not end there. He then contemplates his great God. He thinks and considers who it is that has made the promise to him. In Romans chapter 4, verse 21, we are told that he is fully assured that what God has promised, he is able to perform. Abraham contemplates the great I am. He contemplates the God who is eternal, immortal, immutable, and faithful. He contemplates and remembers that there is nothing in this cosmos that can hinder the one who is promised accomplishing his perfect will. And so, even though against hope the circumstances seem impossible, the one who made the promise is more than able. Then we come, as we've worked through examples of testing in Abraham's life, to the third test. The third test is found in verses 17 through 19. Now, the first test came when God said, go to the destination that to you is invisible. And Abraham went. The second was when God said what we just reviewed, I'm going to give you a promise. Fulfill it even though it seems impossible to you. And sure enough, Abraham and Sarah, by faith, experienced the birth of Isaac. And now we come to Abraham being tested once again in particular, and God asks him to take your son, 
your only son Isaac, whom you love, Genesis 22, and sacrifice him to me on Mount Moriah. Sacrifice that promised son on Mount Moriah. Now, for us who hear the word sacrifice, I, I want to just make it crystal clear. Sacrifice him as a burnt offering. So we, we know, I think, most of us would know what a burnt offering is. A burnt offering happens when an animal is, is slain, its blood is drained, and its carcass, its body, is then burned. That's what he's being asked to do with his son. Any father told to do this to his son would be tested beyond anything he could possibly imagine. And this is how Abraham was tested. Now, there is a, an old author and, and pastor by the name of F.B. Meyer, and he gives this emotional description. I want to read it to you just to kind of set the scene for us using our imagination. Can you not see the old man slowly gathering the stones, bringing them from the furthest distance possible, placing them with reverent and judicial precision, and binding the wood with as much deliberation as possible? But at last everything is complete, and he turns to break the fatal secret to the young lad who had stood by just wandering. Inspiration draws a veil over this last tender scene, the father's announcement of his mission, the broken sobs, the kisses wet with tears, the instant submission of the son who was old enough and strong enough to rebel if he had that in mind. Then the binding of that tender frame, which indeed needed no compulsion, because the young heart had learned the secret of obedience and resignation. Finally, the lifting him to lie upon the altar on the wood. Here was a spectacle which must have arrested the attention of heaven. Here was a proof of how much mortal men will do for the love of God. Here was an evidence of childlike faith, which must have thrilled the heart of the eternal God and moved him in the very depths of his being. Do you and I love God like this? Is he more to us than our nearest and dearest? Suppose they stood on this side and he on that side. Would we go with him? though it cost us the loss of all. I wonder this morning how we would respond. Do you think you would do the same? It is a great thing for us to say, well, yes, I would do it if God called me to it. The air upon this height is too rare to breathe with comfort. The one explanation of this is to be found in the words of our Lord, he that loveth father or mother, son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So why is Abraham willing to do this? Well, the passage before us this morning does tell us. I want to draw your attention to Hebrews eleven nineteen. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which 
figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now, the author of Hebrews is not reading into the Old Testament something that isn't there in the story. I, I want to remind you what it says in Genesis 22.5. So the scene is unfolding. Then Abraham said to his young men, so this is as they're about to pro- approach the mountain, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Whatever was to happen on that mountain, Abraham never questioned or doubted that God's promise to raise up a glorious people through that very son would be fulfilled. Did he know how? No. Did he trust? Yes. If God has promised that through my son, says Abraham, he will bring salvation to the nations, and God has given me this son when I was a hundred years old, then this God, if indeed he is able to raise this son from the dead in order to keep his promises, he will do that very thing. And so he goes. And it is quite amazing as we stand as spectators watching this man live by faith. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back. And in that sense, God gave his son back to him as though it were a resurrection. Now, here's a question to kind of ponder for a moment. What is being tested here And really, the the only response is when you look at Abraham's life, his faith at this point is being tested by God. It's been tested when God called him to go. Will you go? Will you sojourn in the land that I have promised for years and years and years? Will you trust me that I have promised that you will have a son through Sarah? Will you trust me? And now, will you offer up your only son that I have? have promised to you. Now, if we are being really honest here, if this is what testing of our faith looks like, I would be the first to say, I don't ever really want to have my faith tested, right? You look at this story and it just is like so difficult. I mean, so beyond our emotional capacity to even understand the lengths at which he is being called to go to trust. But in reality, our faith, if not tested, would be so weak and flabby. And that is not what God has called us to be about as his people living by faith. What I mean by this is that if we were not tested, then every challenge that was presented to us would be so terrifying that we would be unable to truly walk in obedience and trust in the Lord. But this testing of our faith, instead of making us stay out of shape and tired and weak, God knows exactly what each one of his children needs in order to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Now, it may not ever look the way that it looked for Abraham, but God knows exactly, brother or sister, what you need in your life and how your faith may be tested. And it is not to make you sit there and go, 
Why is he so angry at me? No, 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 no. It is actually his grace upon us when he puts us in situations when our faith is tested. Now, that is difficult to see outside of trusting in his revealed word to us. If you just, were, if you just kind of walk according to your own sight and own senses and own rationale, that's not going to make a whole lot of sense. But according to God's word and how we see him care for his children from the beginning to the end, this is actually exactly what it looks like to grow and to be built up. It's actually having our faith, faith tested. Now, I want you to understand the way in which this unfolds should actually bring encouragement to us when we experience the testing of our faith. You see, God has been building Abraham and Sarah up and building them up and building them up. And now Abraham was in a position to say to the Lord, Lord, this is the very best gift you have ever given me. And instead of having closed fists around it, he had a posture of an open-handedness to God. Trusting the one who gave the gift would be faithful to take care of every need and, and love the gift even more than Abraham could ever love the gift. God's care and concern was so much more, and Abraham, by faith, was able to see that and trust and say, you love these more than we love them, and we therefore can entrust them to you. All we have is safe in him. Even in this life, if it seems like we're losing everything, hear the words from Martin Luther's famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom forever. And when we grasp this by faith, we also are able to pass these particular tests that God has for us. Now, what I, I want us to see as we kind of come to a close here is a, a great portrait of the gospel in this very example of Abraham living by faith. We've heard this verse said a few times now, verse 19, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. I want to just kind of hone in for a moment on that that phrase, figuratively speaking. The word translated figuratively points to the fact that the experience of Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah was actually a foreshadowing or a prefiguring of the experience of God the Father and Jesus Christ, God the Son, on Calvary. Isaac and his deliverance from death, really, you could view it as like a symbol or a type of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, let's consider a few of the ways in which these stories parallel. The love of, Ad, of, of Abraham for Isaac really is a portrait of the love of God, the Father, for his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as Abraham the Father was to be, by the command of God, the executioner of his Son, his only Son, so also it was God the Father who put to death his son. A symbol 
or a sign helping point forward to what God and his grand plan of redemption was to accomplish through his very son. In Isaiah 53, 6, we, we read that the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all. And again, in Isaiah 53, 10, we read, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And then finally, Isaac, the son, also typifies you and me in a way. In other words, we are the ones who deserve to be slain for our sin. But if you remember how the story unfolds, God in his grace provides a substitute for us, one that would actually die in our place. And in the gospel, that is clearly and only the Lord Jesus Christ, the spotless lamb. So hear from Genesis 22 and see how these, these stories parallel. And Abraham lifted up his eyes. This is as he is about to kill his only son and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Just as Isaac was removed from the altar and the sacrificial lamb was placed there in his place, so we are removed from the cross that we deserve of God's wrath and Jesus, the spotless lamb, is placed right there in our stead. God, who loves his son to an even greater degree than Abraham loved Isaac, sent his son to die for sinners like us. Now, in closing, I want to remind us, as we're thinking about living by faith in this chapter 11 of Hebrews, the object of our faith is God. We must keep that at the forefront. When we fix our eyes upon our circumstances, then we begin to lose sight of the object of our faith, which is God. We are not called to ignore our circumstances, but if you think about the Apostle Peter, we, like Peter, walking upon the water, begin to shake our heads in perplexity and in be be bewilderment with the circumstances crushing in, and we begin to sink. What I mean is that there are times when we are perplexed by our circumstances. We may find ourselves in despair, maybe the state of the church at large or our culture. We may be in despair over that temptation that just keeps gnawing at us and we just can't seem to overcome. Whatever the circumstance, if we find ourselves so fixed upon that and lose sight of God, we again begin to sink. We need to be like Abraham. He did look at his circumstances that were surely overwhelming, and yet we're told in Romans 4 his faith did not grow weak. Well, why is that? What's so beautiful about that passage in Romans 4 is that it leads really right into the reality of that, that uh, the reality of his faith not growing weak, but, but then you ask, well, why was it not growing weak? And instead of growing weak, we're told that he considered. Abraham pondered 
who God is and what he had promised. Do you see that there's this shift of focus? He fixed his eyes upon God who made the promise. And we're told that he grows strong in faith, and in doing so, he glorifies God. God is glorified when we set our gaze, our fix, upon him, the object of our faith, and delight in him, and find our satisfaction in him, and are completely dependent upon him. He is glorified, and yet, and he gets to then accomplish all that he has for us in providing for his own. Faith is how we respond to the situations in which the Lord and his providence places in our midst by trusting him rather than trusting our own resources or the situations we find ourselves in. He is glorified when we fix our gaze upon him. Abraham and Sarah, they looked to God and concluded, I will trust God. He most certainly is able to do all that he has promised. Let us pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. Father, we pray that our lives would be able to reflect what we read in James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. May we trust you even in the testing of our faith, knowing that you are, you are sovereign and you are good. And nothing happens in our lives by happenstance or chance. But God, you have ordained all things to unfold exactly the way they are and will. May we walk by faith, just as these examples have been given to us. And we realize, Father, we are completely dependent upon your help in doing so. Faith is a gift. The aid of the Holy Spirit to sustain is a gift. From first to last, God, you get all the glory for anything good in our lives. And we pray that that would be a reality, walking by faith in Christ alone. Amen. Amen. Please stand as we respond together this morning.